Thank you. Thank you. This is a the podcast. We are delighted, delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. So this is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. Robin Sipp, as a Dutch writer, producer, director, and CEO of Mirage 3D, Robin is best known for productions like Mars 1001, Dinosaurs at Dusk, Origins of Life, Natural Selection, and Dawn of the Space Age, which was the world's first 3D full-dome film. Sipp is also an award-winning pioneer of special venue 3D cinema, and his Mirage 3D is a leading full-dome VR producer having produced some 20 full-dome shows. He began his professional life as a computer engineer, moved on to become a 3D modeler, and eventually a writer-director. More recently, he has focused on the improvement of live-action capture for domes and the design of new camera rigs for films and full-dome VR productions. I met Robin over a decade ago in Denver, Colorado, when his work was presented by Dan Nafis in the Gates Planetarium at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Since then, we collaborated on the creation of the planetarium version of feature documentary Moonwalk One on the anniversary of Apollo 11. It has my music and sound. Robin, thanks for joining us on Immerse. Robin, I'm glad that we could meet today, and this is our interview for Immerse, the podcast and book, and you've spent your life working in planetarium business, not your life, but your, since your teenager, and I'm wondering what first got you interested in immersive experiences? What was your inspiring experience, you know, 
Did it happen like when you were two years old or when you went to the Omniversum? But where, where did all of this start? Well, it started with a, with a, uh, a love for, for space flight from a very early age. I remember when I was very young, my dad told me about the Apollo program. And uh, then I started to ask him questions about it. And he told me about the Russians and that people died in space. And I thought it was all very fascinating. And then at some point he couldn't answer my questions anymore. And I, I would go to the local library and I got all the books uh, I could find on it and started to memorize a lot of the first astronauts of, of Apollo 11, 12, 13, etc. And, and then um, later I started to study Electroengineering, computer uh, engineering, because I thought it's it's a step in the right direction to work in the space industry. But then, when I was about 18 years old, I visited this space theater, this Omnimax, which they now call IMAX Dome Theater in The Hague, which had just opened a few years ago, uh, Omniverse in The Hague, and they had a 23 meter tilted dome, and and they showed a space film uh, at that time. And I thought, this is amazing. This is a really cool place to work. So I worked there in my student time, actually, uh, part-time. And uh, then I got my hands on the first digital projector, Digister One, the first in Europe. And, um, and then I got to do my undergraduate thesis project with Evans and Sutherland in Salt Lake City. So, uh, so I, I realized during my study that I really like uh, music. I really like telling stories or educating about uh, space flight, about astronomy, about science in general, and and so I, I thought this is this is the place where I want to work. I'd like to, you know, make uh, content. I want to make immersive films, educational films for audiences, uh, more so than you know being an engineer in in the space industry. So that, that's kind of how it started. Well, thank you for that. I was wondering now that you have made your life in full dome cinema and immersive experience making. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this world that you're in, how you work and how you think and uh, what it is for you. Well, so after 20 years of, of running uh, this small company uh, in making full dome films, um, we're at this very fortunate point that we can almost make a show about anything we like. Well, almost, because it needs to make some commercial sense in the end. We cannot make a show that nobody will, will license. Um, but so normally I am very interested in a lot of different science topics. And I, I, I can only make a show about something I, I, I really care about myself. And so normally I pick a topic that I always want to dive more into. Uh, because making a film is, is many years of research. Uh, you need to read all the books you can find about it, find other documentaries about it, do a lot of internet searching, um, uh, reference images, and, and get a mental picture of what really happened of, or, or, or how you really want to portray it. So. So we're basically, well, we're taking a subject that we think is also interesting for, for a lot of uh, theaters. And then it's, it's, it's a long process. Some of these films from early idea to completion took seven years. So you, you really must love the topic to, to spend that, that much time researching it and, and, and fine tuning it. But we, we don't do a market research and ask people what, what it is that they would like to, like to see. I mean, one example was, for example, our film Natural Selection about Charles Darwin. Uh, a lot of people told me, you shouldn't do that. Uh, you shouldn't do that because it has nothing to do with astronomy and planetariums are mainly going to be interested in astronomy. And secondly, there's a lot of theaters in the United States, in the South, that won't license such a show. But I was a bit stubborn then, I still did it, but it, it did turn out great because it was like 
sold over a hundred copies and uh, a lot of theaters in the south especially in the bible belt have licensed it because they needed such, such a show in a science center too especially there it's, it's needed a lot so so you shouldn't always do what you're told or or ask the, the customers often also don't know what they want until they see it so it's more intuition or and follow your own interest and hopefully other people like that too oh. Once you have um, a subject and are uh, beginning to build the show, what what are you, what's your workflow like? How uh, do you visu visualize it from the final results back to the details of production, or do you think from production to where you can get to? Uh, or how do you do it? So we, we often start with storyboards first, be, before the script and uh, store, uh, storyboard pictures or mood board even the pictures of scenes that should be in there without having a complete uh, idea of the entire story yet and it and over the course of a year or so it kind of there's some gaps in there and it kind of all blends together so we after the storyboard we make animatics so that the whole film at some point will be an animatic uh, with especially important with music which can be placeholder music but music is really good for for the pace of it that you did so if you don't use music music you often think oh this scene uh, takes way too long especially if there's no narration but music will will allow you to to get a sense of uh of feeling and uh, so so we at some point we have a whole film as an animatic um, with often a whole soundtrack that we even even put temp narration in in the sound studio a whole soundtrack which will be completely replaced later uh, because a lot will be composed by a composer but but putting temporary music over the animatics will is a way to communicate with the composer about feeling and pace and um, uh, so so we yeah we have a temporary soundtrack and then we get a real soundtrack but we start yeah we start with mood board pictures then then with a storyboard and then with uh, animatics but there's often some holes in there it, it takes quite long for, until the whole show becomes a unit and and at the, and and almost. In, in the middle of this process, start to add words to it. Because I think that if you write a script as a book, you're, you're, you're writing it uh, for people to visualize everything in their head. But the movie uh, visualizes a lot of things already. For example, if, if like a Russian rocket explodes, you would need to write that in your book that it explodes. But, but in, in, the, in the visuals, you already see that, so you shouldn't. You should do the opposite. You shouldn't say it that the rocket explodes because it's already visual. So, so you just need to put the words in between the visuals where it's necessary. So, I would argue that we don't want to use more than 50% narration in in a, in a film. And so, so, a lot of things people already know, and the images explain the story as well. And then you only put the words just to make the bridge to the next scene or to explain the importance of something. Um, uh, but you, and you should also not, not not get into details as how many gallons of fuel there is in a rocket. I mean, the visuals already show that this is a, a, a huge rocket. So, so don't get into those details. Uh, I mean, try to minimize, uh, keep it simple, the, the, the script. So, so in, in the end, you have something that really fits together. So the script and the music and the images all go together and they cannot be separated from each other. So if you, in the end, would read the script, it, it feels like things are missing and that actually is good because uh, it's not written to be a book. So that, that's that's 
kind of our little formula uh, how to get things done. So, but a lot is inspired by musicals. Scenes are, are re-engineered on music, and then we, we are flexible enough to say, okay, we're not going to put animation there because it's fighting with the music. We wait until we have a have a chance when the music mellowed out a little bit. Um, so it's it's, uh, it's a dance between those three, and it, it's, it doesn't happen in, in, in a few weeks. It, it, it's gross. Well, then when you begin to um, work with the large surface of the screen and the experience of being inside of a dome. Uh, how does all of your thinking uh, lead to that moment? What has happened in your process? Uh, since you already know what it almost like, how do, how do you manage that spatial aspect? Well, it, it, the experience of being in the dome is, is close to being there for real, right? So, like in real life, if you don't have certain close-ups, you don't have certain cuts. So you try to not cuts too much in in, in the edits. You, you try to really have the audience believe they're, they're standing there for, for real and give them time to observe the, the space. So rule of thumb would be to at least give them six seconds to, to to realize where they are, but they need to be able to look around, which is, is the set falls apart, Charlie. Do <laughs> uh, you want to do that again? <laughs> you had that planned. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> this is a two-year-old set and it's, the glue is starting to, to come loose. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. I, I like that. <laughs> I, I love your answer about writing for the experience because the people really are there this time and uh, it's not like they're watching a TV or anything. So you could tell that story again. So, so actually I, I had put this in because it was laying on the ground. I put it in there and of course it fell out now because this set is slowly falling apart. But but if I leave it out now, you haven't, you're gonna in your edit, you suddenly are missing that, <laughs> that thing. But I guess that's better than it falls falls out again, right? We can do this together and make it do exactly what we, we want to do. Keep, 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 keep the ceiling from the first shots, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I'm not going to stand up. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, just ask me again. Immerse. Sounds. See, when you prepare the movie for the dome, what are the factors that you that, that you take into account to make it real in that space? So a dome gives the impression that you're really there, as if you're really on the ship with Darwin, if you really had a launch site, um, because it's 360 degrees. And so it's different from television, where we're used, for 100 years in film, we're used to to know that I've got, uh, we're not surprised to see a person walking in a room small and suddenly we see a close-up of that person. But when you think of it very logically, that is really strange. I mean, that's not how real life works. So we try to, uh, with the dome experience, give people the, uh, the, the feeling that they're really there, uh, so that they're really next to this, this scientist or next to this, this, uh, this historic event. And, and then we give them time to observe uh, the new the new scene like like six seconds at least so that they can look around where they are because the field of view is, is limited uh, you know you really have to turn your head to see the entire dome so really try to always tell to ourselves uh, uh, let's pretend these people are really there they're standing next to the events and and try to avoid many cuts or fast cuts try to avoid close-ups well that's not how real life works so so it's a very simple rule just try to 
take these people by the hand and take them on this journey as if they were there. Well, to close, could you tell me what your favorite scene that you've made or that somebody else has made in a full dome production? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the goosebump uh, moment. Um, I quite like in, 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 in another producer's film, the, uh, the Hayabusa film from uh, Kosaka, the ending scene with the music, it, it's just, uh, I mean, it's really well done that you, that you start to develop a feeling for a mechanical object that traveled so many years through space and is returning to Earth. Uh, it's really well, well, uh, well, the pacing and the music uh, really gives you goosebumps. And in one of our films, I would say, in Dinosaurs at Dusk, uh, at the very end, we have a scene where the asteroid is going to wipe out all the dinosaurs. And by then, you know, the two protagonists have been really started to to like this 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 uh, prehistoric world and and they know today that day it's, it's all going to end it's all going to 70 percent of them is going to are, are going to be uh, extinct and so they are they're flying away in the scene in this in this ultralight aircraft through a canyon which is based on a canyon in mexico actually uh but we we we, we have all, all prehistoric plants there and then at the last moment they see the biggest flying animals ever quetzalcoatl and, and earlier on in the story, the, the actor said that, that they would love to fly with them. And, and so basically just before the world get destroyed, they fly in formation with these Quetzalcoatls. And, and so they have a V formation and, and their, their ultralight becomes a part of them. So at the end of this film, it's almost like they became, became one with the pterosaurs or, or dinosaurs just before they got wiped out and, and the mammals survive. And uh, we used the music, uh, Zadok, the priest, uh, which is normally used as a coronation uh, anthem for for the new English queen or king, and 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 the choir sings, uh, uh, "Long live the king! May the king live forever!" And and they refer to to this Quetzalcoatl as the king of all flying animals. And, and of course, he will not live forever. He's actually going to be extinct today. But just before that, they are one with them, flying information through this canyon. And I think the music and the visuals uh, work well with it. It's probably one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that, and thank you for taking the time for today's interview. Uh, Robin, uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Charlie, thanks. Bye. Bye. Immerse is pleased to be sponsored by the esteemed avant-garde record label recital run by Sean McCann in Los Angeles, California. Over the past decade, Recital has published both archival and contemporary sound art, sound poetry, and new music. Collaborating closely with Charlie Morrow and the Charlie Morrow Archive over the past few years, McCann and Morrow have published over a dozen vinyl records, CDs, and books from artists such as Dick Higgins, Allison Knowles, and Tardos, Derek Bailey, and Morrow himself. Last year, a wonderful sound poetry box set and book edition celebrating the 1980 International Sound Poetry Festival was published to critical acclaim. As a listener of Immerse, Recital offers you a 20% discount off of your next purchase from them. Please visit recitalprogram.bandcamp.com and enter the promo code Immerse to claim your 20% discount. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, 
and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. Immerse. An empty shell fall back into the sea. This is the end. <laughs>